start right on time, or pretty close to it, to kind of pack this in. We don't normally have two speakers at once uh, on the same evening, unless it's a panel discussion. Um, and certainly they're not usually married also, but we have two amazing scholars with us today. Uh, to, my, to my right is Dr. Lynn Kay, who received her bachelor's and master's at the University of Cambridge, received her doctorate at NYU, uh, was teaching at, at HUC in LA, and is now a professor at OSU. And Rabbi Dr. Alex Kay, who received his bachelor's and master's also at the University of Cambridge, his doctorate at Columbia, did a postdoc at Princeton, and is now also a professor at OSU. Um, aside from all of their accomplishments, intellectual and in leadership and pastoral, um, they are just wonderful scholars, delightful people, deeply insightful, charming, and wonderful mentors. And I'm privileged to have them as friends, colleagues, mentors. So um, we have this fascinating topic tonight of looking at the death penalty from different eras. And I'm going to let them introduce the topic. And I think given the size, we're going to do sitting rather than, than a lectern tonight. So with that, the floor is being handed over to the case. Thank you all so much for being with us. Well, hello, everybody. So nice to be with you. Um, Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley, for having us. This is our first time in Phoenix. It is beautiful. We were at the Botanic Gardens today. Oh, so what a beautiful place that you live in, and we're so happy to be able to study with you tonight. I'm going to launch right in. Uh, Shonda Walter is a 36-year-old on Pennsylvania's death row. The New York Times published an editorial just today about her case. Her lawyers are appealing her sentence arguing that capital punishment by any method violates the Eighth Amendment and is cruel and unusual punishment. And the Supreme Court met on Friday to discuss whether to hear her appeal. And people might wonder, sitting in a synagogue in an event organized uh, by a Bet Midrash then, what does Judaism say about capital punishment? But as you know, when there are two Jews, there are three opinions. And the joke, I think, has its roots um, in something very old, which is that ancient Jewish law, from the Talmud through modern Jewish law, um, is a tradition of dissenting voices, not a single voice. And in fact, halakha, Jewish law, develops its legal principles by arguing about interpretations of previous sources. In other words, Judaism does not have one thing to say about capital punishment. But I think the Talmud, which is my field of research and later Jewish law, does have a lot to offer about how to think about capital punishment, and capital punishment in a modern state. And I'm going to hand over to Alex to say a little bit about where he's going to go with uh, his part of the presentation this evening. And then what's going to happen is we're going to study some of these texts from the classical Jewish period from about 200 to about 600 CE. That'll be my part of the evening. And then Alex will present some thoughts about the modern state. So, Yeah, I, I think um, uh, that our two presentations are going to work very well together tonight, all being well. There's a lot of discussion in the American public discourse about the role that religious faith and also uh, religious beliefs and values should have in public policy. So, for example, how important is it that, according to 
let's say, Christianity or a certain um, denomination of Christianity, X is a good thing or X is a bad thing, what relevance should that have for what the laws of the United States should be? So um, what we're going to do this evening, uh, Lynn is going to concentrate primarily on what some early um, Jewish sources had to say about the death penalty. I'll talk a little bit about what some more recent sources had to say about it. But then we're going to also deal with a, um, a second question, which is now that we have some understanding of what Judaism has to say about the death penalty, how should that or sh how should it not affect how we take part in public conversations outside of the Jewish community in the United States public square at large? So let's launch right in. Let's start with a little bit of history. I mentioned that the texts that I brought for you tonight are from about 200 to about 600 of the Common Era. And it's important to establish a few historical facts. These are the classical rabbis, the rabbis who wrote a fair amount of the prayers that are in our prayer book, who formed a lot of the basis of practices that um, Jews observe today in all of the denominations. And they do talk about capital punishment. Now, the Bible talks about capital punishment, but the rabbis do more than that. They don't just repeat what the Bible says. In the Mishnah, which is a very important code of Jewish law from about 200, from Roman Palestine, they create new versions of capital punishment. They go into detail about procedures of different kinds of capital punishment. So they are innovating. They're talking about doing things and the processes by which they might perform capital punishment and how the judging would go and how the actual executions would go. But what's funny about it um, is that they never had the legal authority to try capital cases in like 200 and even really in the first century of the Common Era, right through around 600. They did not have the legal authority to do that. If we look at Roman Palestine, the, the only authority that could try and kill people would have been the Roman governor, the kind of um, representative of the emperor. And according to Beth Berkowitz's book, which I recommend, called Execution and Invention, unfortunately, this happened quite a bit. So to live a life as a colonized Jew in Roman Judea in about 200 was a precarious life. So the rabbis would have known about capital punishment. They might have been afraid that if they did like the wrong thing, they could end up having a very nasty fate. But they themselves, as a people living under imperial power, could never have tried and executed anybody. There is, though, as I mentioned, quite a bit of rabbinic literature about execution. You might have heard, has anyone heard this tradition, that a Sanhedrin, a Jewish court, that kills once in seven years is called bloodthirsty or called destructive? Has anyone ever heard that? It's a rabbinic statement. It's in the Mishnah in Makot. Um, so there's actually a whole bunch of literature that goes back to this time. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, if the rabbis could never have put anybody to death, much like the Jewish community in the United States certainly could not do this now, what would be the point of having so much of their legal literature devoted to procedures for trying capital cases, procedures for execution, procedures for appeal before execution. Any thoughts that you might have on where that kind of motivation would come from? Yeah. Uh, getting ready for the time when we will be able mm -hmm. to actually follow through. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Um, 
I'll, I'll say something. There are other people who think that in some ways it goes in two directions. It goes back in a nostalgic way to some imagined past of some biblical history where this would have been possible, and at the same time forward in kind of a utopian way and trying to occupy both of those things at once. So that's, I think that, that's definitely um, well based in the sources. What were you going to say? Sure. They divorced would have still applied with Jewish law. Yes. How did the Romans get into that? I mean, I know in the state you had to get civil um, uh, marriage. Uh, if I have a, you know, I have a, a religious wedding from Israel, but they, ha I have to have a civil. I'm not married here if I'm not having a civil. Uh, so how did it work in the Roman time? I think I would make a distinction between um, what we would probably call criminal law and things that could be punished by something as severe as um, uh, flogging or bodily injury or death, which the rabbis would have had no control over, and um, things like marriage, which people who chose to follow the rabbis in Roman Palestine could opt into, um, conforming to, and then they would have had um, practice of those laws. So I would say that, um, and this is a little bit off of our subject, so I'll say it briefly, and we can talk about it maybe after the so class. the Romans did not have their own law on the Jewish community to say, you need to get a Roman license to be married or something like that? That I don't know. But what I will say is that the rabbis in the period of the, of the Roman times were not nearly as influential in the Jewish community as their literature would like them to appear. So we wouldn't think that the majority of Jews in, let's say, first century and onwards, Palestine, would, especially in the first and second century that we're talking about here, the majority of Jews would not have gone to rabbis as we know them for looking at this. The rabbis were trying to have more influence. So what I can offer is that, that, that they did not have the kind of hegemony that, for example, the rabbinate has in modern Israel on personal status law. But I'm going to go back to capital cases for a moment. Um, and any other thoughts about why Jews living in Roman Palestine would spend, especially rabbis, who are, as, as actually this is quite relevant, who were trying to assert more and more kind of authority over other Jews, trying to persuade them to follow their way. What would be the point um, of having these kinds of conversations about death penalty? Any, any further thoughts? I like the idea of planning for the future. Anything else that you think of? When would there be a necessity? There are time, pe pe unfortunately, people are not perfect, and an activity could occur that would be detrimental, detrimental to the society, and it would be necessary to uh, kill, to execute uh, that individual. So that the Jews who are creating these laws are thinking that there might be a time when they could have such political power, in which case they need to keep developing their laws. That they would need to have. Need to have that kind of power. Kind of yeah. Power. It's not a matter of saying, oh, I think we'll have a law that says we can kill people just to kill people. No. Well, no. But, but we need to have something established that says, if this, then that. And I want to add one more thing to this. Yes. Oh, yes. Go ahead. 
if another enemy comes in, the Jews are going to go with the Ramas and not with the enemy. True, but that doesn't answer why Jews need these laws. Just let me take another comment from the back. It seems to me that it's a deterrent against crime. Yes, can you say more about that? Especially based on the fact that they could never go through with it. So how could talking about capital punishment be a deterrent? I think it can be, but can you say a little more? Well, it, it's, you know, there's the fact that there are, there are laws that keep us honest and keep us from, from committing crimes against our neighbors and all of those things. It's very formal now. It was probably very in informal at that time. And so by, by having the conversation and having people hearing about it, it would, it would keep them on a straight line. Yeah, I want to kind of support that a little bit, say something a little different, but, but add some support. There's a, um, and I see your hand. Um, there's an English legal theorist, H.L.A. Hart. And he thought that there were probably two roles for um, articulating punishment. One of them would be to explain the severity of a law. Almost like if you say to you know, us people who are bound by law that this has a very, very, very bad punishment, this isn't actually about the punishment. This is about saying, don't break that law. And I kind of feel like that's along the lines of some of what you're saying, that there can be an educational aspect that is not, it can be a deterrent, don't do it, but it's less of a deterrent if they're not going to actually put anyone to death. But it is a deterrent if it's saying, this is really important to us as lawmakers. We're going to add this level of seriousness through punishment. And there was, I, I saw your hand, but there was another, yes? All through the ages, the Jews have maintained their, their apart from the society in which they existed, they tried to maintain themselves and avoid assimilation. This may have been an attempt on their part to stay separate from the ruling Roman hierarchy. And I want to support that, too, in just a slightly different way. That Beth Berkowitz, that book that I mentioned, she thinks, and she studies these particular texts, and she says she thinks that talking about death penalty when they couldn't do death penalty was an identity formation exercise for the rabbis. It was about them figuring out what was important to them and them identifying themselves as important lawmakers, seeing themselves in that way. And one of her big proofs of that is that, she, is that the rabbis take on a kind of death penalty that does not exist in the Bible, which is uh, death by sword. And they call it the way that the empire does it, essentially. So there is this sense of the rabbis reacting to the empire that they are a part of and trying to, through their literature, imagine themselves in these kinds of positions. Why, I think this is connected to your comment because it is showing the power of engaging in these kinds of discussions in order to figure out who they are. You're talking about them being separate. She might say another aspect of identity is trying to be, be even a more um, powerful version of the people that they're not. But whatever it is, it's about who they are, not necessarily about what they do. And I think that that's a very powerful um, thing to add to the conversation. And one last uh, comment before we take a look at some of the things. I guess I was thinking about, and I don't remember if it was on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, but there's a whole segment there about uh, stoning and I think even beheading uh, yeah. 
Well, I, isn't there a part of the confession in some liturgy, some Jewish liturgies have part of a confession that talks about what punishment they might have gotten? Were you thinking of that piece or something else? All I remember is that they, okay. I was so shocked that I was seeing that there were punish, could be punishments of stoning and etc. I mean, who will die by this way or who will die by this way? No, it's another whole segment. I'm sorry, I don't have that. Okay, what were you thinking about that? What I'm thinking about that is that the rabbi of this period, that you're in the Talmud that you're talking about, were kind of going forward from that to have a different discussion about um, the death penalty. Yes, I mean, I think that some of those texts that you're talking about are their texts that move away from the biblical ones, um, because beheading would be a good example. So, he, so here's what I want, where I want to go with this now. What these texts that we're about to study together can do for our thinking about, Jewish, about the death penalty in Jewish terms is, one, to recognize that every Jewish legal opinion, including the ones here and including contemporary ones in any denomination, about capital punishment and about other things. But capital punishment is a good example. All of these Jewish legal opinions are part of particular social historical contexts. The reason why capital punishment is a good place to remember that is because it's particularly obvious that it was not a legal text to teach people what to do because the rabbis never got to do any of this. It was a legal text that was a Jewish response to the, to the situation that they were in, situation of being a people under imperial rule, to being a community at, right after destruction that was trying to reimagine itself in a different way, that it was an internal conversation. These, these texts are an internal conversation about what it is to be Jewish in their time, especially about a law that is never going to be practiced. And I think that now also, when we look at Jewish responses to capital punishment, we should never read those responses as somehow you know, truth from heaven or something that is not socially conditioned. That any, let's say, American or Israeli contemporary response in Jewish terms to capital punishment is as historically conditioned as these rabbis were. Go ahead. Okay. Prior to the Romans, the Jews had their own society. So there must have been a provision So I don't think we have time right now to talk about what happened before the Romans. But I will say that um, the, the, the degree of sovereignty that, for example, the Jews had in the Hasmonean period was remarkable, but already sort of declined pretty soon into client rule to an empire. And so it wasn't like, there wasn't like a moment from complete Jewish sovereignty to no Jewish sovereignty. There was always a, there were moments of greater degrees of self-government and lesser degrees. And so that's sort of where I can leave that for now. And we can maybe talk about it just us afterwards. Okay, well, may I make just one, one so, comment on that? I'm actually going to ask you to hold it until the question time at the end, and we'll take a look at the texts. Okay, <laughs> so maybe make a note. Okay, okay great. All right, well, I have for you, um, in both Hebrew and English, a selection from the Mishnah, which, as I mentioned, is a um, Jewish legal compilation from the year, around the year 200, but of oral traditions that were earlier than that, and a selection from the Babylonian Talmud, which we think came to its kind of 
form that we have it in the fifth or sixth centuries of the Common Era, but in modern-day Iraq, um, and also has earlier material in it. Now, the context for the Mishnah, and I have it in both Hebrew and English. I will read it in the English, but feel free to take a look at the Hebrew that's there for you. The context of this chapter 6 in Mishnah Sanhedrin is, uh, is the procedure for stoning. Certain laws, um, according to the Bible, were to be punished by stoning. Um, they include uh, transgressing Sabbaths, blasphemy, and some other things. And what this chapter does is it says after a person... Um, has been convicted, what is the procedure for stoning? And after a person has been stoned and is dead, there is one other thing that rabbinic law imagines or prescribes should happen to the body of the prisoner. And I want to, so this is going to be a little bit difficult, perhaps, because this, you know, can be a little bit yucky. Um, so, you know, be, be advised. This is now the warning. I want to read these two laws together, and then we're going to talk about it. Um, I will read. So we're reading at 6-4. All that have been stoned must be hanged, said Rabbi Eliezer. We'll define hanged in a minute. But the sages say none is hanged save the blasphemer and the idolater. Now how did they hang a man? They put a beam into the ground and a piece of wood jutted from it. And the two hands of the body were brought together and in this fashion the body was hanged. So they're not hanging from the neck, they're hanging from bound hands. Rabbi Yosei says, the beam was made to lean against a wall and one hanged the corpse as a butcher's do. And they let it down at once. If it remained there overnight, it would transgress a negative commandment. As it is written, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day. For he that is hanged is a curse. Kililat Elohim Talui. As if to say, why was this one hanged? Because he blessed, which is a euphemism for cursed, the name, and the name of heaven was found profaned. The next law, and then we'll go and talk about it. Rabbi Meir said, when a man is very troubled, what does the Shekhinah say? What does the divine presence say? My head is ill at ease, kalani meiroshi. My arm is ill at ease, kalani mizroi. If God is troubled at the blood of the wicked that is shed, how much more so the blood of the righteous? Furthermore, everyone that allowed his dead to remain overnight transgressed a negative command. It is for, but if he had allowed it to remain unburied by reason of honor due to it, to bring for it a coffin or burial clothes, he does not thereby commit a transgression. All right, let's take a look at this now. It's interesting to me that of the many sins that, according to the Bible, would get stoning, the examples that are brought out and singled out here are blasphemy and idolatry as examples. And this sets the tone for what's going to come um, in Mishnah 6.4 and in the Babylonian Talmud, which is that it's the invocation of God as a present actor in this whole thing. So it could have mentioned Sabbath transgressions, and it didn't. It wanted to talk about a person getting put to death for blasphemy and idolatry, which are sins against the honor of God, mistaking someone for God or um, not, not showing God the proper respect, and that would be blasphemy. Let's think about putting up the body and taking it down. Now, there is a direct requirement in Deuteronomy to not let a dead body 
um, be hanging there, staying out there overnight, that it is, um, it's, it's um, inappropriate. We'll talk about maybe it's even blasphemous. What do you suppose would be the reasons for taking, well, for putting up a body? You can't get into the mind of, you know, the commandment from the Bible, but what, what do you see in it? The reason to put up a body that has been executed and then pretty soon after take it down. What is that doing? And maybe anyone who hasn't yet contributed. Um, yeah. Well, I like the deterrent thing, but but they could have buried it. They could have buried it. Yes, they could have buried it immediately. Okay, so you see the deterrent in that. Uh huh. Yeah. Did you have something? I was going to say the same thing. That, you know, people are going to walk by that and see this is what happened to this person. But yeah. And what's the other side of it? Why does the Bible prohibit leaving a dead execu- the body of an executed prisoner? What does the Bible prohibit and the rabbis emphasize leaving that body around overnight? The ancient world smelled terrible, though. The ancient world smelled terrible. <laughs> because I want to draw your attention to the end of this Mishnah. The end of this Mishnah gives us a clue. So in 6.4, the rabbis tell us what they think this taking down the body is about. This is not a practical thing about um, decomposition. It says at the very end, why is this one hanged? Because he blessed the name and the name of heaven was found profaned. And what this seems to be dealing with is that if you, if they were to imagine an executed prisoner hanging there, it actually embarrasses God because, now they, they, they are highlighting blasphemy as one of the reasons a person might be stoned. Why does it embarrass God, at least in the Mishnah? It embarrasses God because it shows that people can blaspheme. You see, that then lowers God's you know, like, if you're walking down the street and you see someone hurt somebody else, the person who got hurt, they are now shown to be vulnerable in a public sphere. It lowers their, their kind of the perception that others have of them as being someone who can protect themselves because you just saw them get hit. In a similar way, the fact that this person is being hanged indicates that someone could blaspheme God. It's sort of like the Monty Python um, blasphemer skit in the life of Brian. The guy keeps saying the name. It just gets more and more out of control. There's meant to be a stoning for a blasphemer, and instead the name gets said again and again and again and again. And so what the rabbis are talking about here is that when a person will be put to death, something embarrassing is happening to God because it's showing that you can actually break the law. So that, okay, so I see your hands. but I, but I want to say a little bit more. Um, I want to talk about kililat Elohim talui. The hanged is the curse of God. Because, um, so at the very end of 6.4. So I just talked about the idea of 
making it known that a person could possibly blaspheme, which sort of makes God look bad in the public sphere. This is Moshe Halbertal's idea. But there's also an aspect here of, so, the, so what Kilad Elohim Talui means is that the, the curse of God is hanging there. That man cursed God, and the curse continues to resonate because you're seeing the guy who did it. Now, the next law says, but God feels bad for a person who is being executed. So that now holds a real tension. On the one hand, there's a problem with execution, visible execution, um, and especially hanging afterwards, because it shows God looking bad because God got blasphemed. There's also a problem with execution, according to this source, because it hurts God. God feels bad. When a person suffers, even a person who was um, an executed uh, criminal, God also hurts. My arm hurts. My head hurts. Now, there was, um, what, how am I doing? Because I may not be able to. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask you to hold your comments for now. I'm going to get through this and then be able to have a little bit of question time afterwards. Also, we're trying to time this so that um, at the end of both of our talks, there'll be time for conversation in case of the stuff that you want to bring up that connects both of us. That's why we, we have the time constraints that we... So the reason that I, I gave you the transliteration Kalani here, even if we're working in the English, is that there is a, a play on words. It means both hurts, like my arm hurts, my head hurts, that God is kind of suffering with the, the criminal, it also means the Hebrew word light, but to take something lightly in a disrespectful way. So the rabbis are even playing with this dual problem of execution. On the one hand, execution, public execution and displaying the body shows that the law can be broken because this guy did. Yes, he was punished, but that means that someone had enough gall to break the law. So it, it shows God in a light not very honorable way, and also this other idea of pain, that God, the lawgiver, is pained when someone suffers. Um, what Moshe Halbertal says um, in a book in Hebrew called um, um, Revolutions in Interpretation, he says this, he reads, is the paradox of deterrent. Punishment understood as deterrent. And we've you know, talked about this. Unfortunately, um, you might theorize that capital punishment and any punishment is there in order to, to deter other people from, from breaking the law. If you see that a bad thing's going to happen, you won't do it. The problem is that God the lawgiver becomes vulnerable because visible execution shows that the law itself can be challenged. So he sees a paradox in deterrent itself from a philosophical perspective. It doesn't just stop people from, um, from disobeying. It shows it is possible to disobey. You could think to disobey, and then you could follow through with it, and yeah, something terrible happened to him. But that means that you're, you're, you had a thought that this law might not actually apply to me, or I don't really care about keeping it, or maybe I'll get away with it. So he thinks that there's something paradoxical, paradoxical about deterrent. And that the reason why blasphemy and idolatry are the big crimes that are being talked about here is because they bring up the same issue. They are questioning whether God the lawgiver really has authority. If you don't think that God the lawgiver has authority, then you're fine taking God's name in vain or worshiping something else. 
So one of the big dramas that Halbertal sees in these texts is, can punishment reinstate honor for the law? Take a look at what the Babylonian Talmud does with this. Now you're turning over to Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 46b. There is a story that is told to keep on working on this idea of why was this guy hanged because he blessed, i.e. cursed, the name of God. And I'll just read. It was taught. Rabbi Meir says, it was like a parable about two twin brothers in a single town. One of them is a king, and one of them led the life of a criminal. The king commanded it, and he was hanged. Can you imagine the family dynamics in that family? And all who saw him said, all who saw this uh, criminal brother said, the king is hanged. And the king commanded it, and they took him down. Let's just pause on that for a minute. Telling this story after talking about displaying an the, the body of an executed criminal is saying something very radical. It's using the idea of a twin brother, two identical men, and it is invoking the principle that humans are created in the image of God, meaning not our free will and not our intellect, which many you know, interpreters will go with. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Oh, it's something, it's a soul. No, this means we look like God. We look like God like an identical twin. And so the king and the criminal look identical. And so when you kill a criminal and display their body, in a very direct and literal way, Rabbi Meir says, you are making God look like God is dead and hanged and a criminal. So this is really going for what the Mishnah was only implying, that there is some kind of disrespect to the law by showing that a criminal could actually transgress it. Here, this notion is actualized. If a, if a criminal hangs out there and looks like the king, it really quest, puts questions in people's minds about whether this law actually applies at all. And so the king had to say, oh, well, take the body down. I don't want to look like I've lost all authority. And he took the body down. What's really audacious, I think, is that God and humans here are talked about as brothers. We have all sorts of other metaphors that do come up. Parent and child, um, husband and wife. They went for something which is um, unusual and, um, and really talks about a level of similarity and God image in every person, and also connects with what the Mishnah said about God feeling pain when a punished person is being hurt, because it, it gets to a deep connection that God has with people, including criminals. So where I, where I think um, I want to leave this here is that, and this is Moshe Halbertal's idea, that in capital punishment, which is the strongest way the law can assert itself on the body of a person, so in capital punishment where law really asserts itself strongly, at that moment, the Talmud questions whether law has any power at all, in that by asserting itself strongly, it's almost undone, undone itself. That is what they're worried about. And if you, if you show 
that a person can and does disobey, which is what public execution shows, rather than asserting authority to um, keep people in line, you have undone authority by showing that people actually do disobey. And here's what I think stories in law and Talmud contribute to thinking about capital punishment. One is that stories are very particular. They are correctives to rules that systematize and generalize. You can identify with a person. Um, and I think that what that could give us in terms of modern Jewish thought about capital punishment is the idea of taking it out of an issue-based conversation and trying to think about whether there could be an individual story to look at or a more personalized aspect. I think that's one thing that stories add and that also the notion of responsa literature that are questions and answers about a particular person's experience in law also could be a Jewish um, addition to the conversation. And the other is that these rabbinic texts show ambivalence about assertions of power. It's not simple to assert deterrent, and it's not simple to go through with serious punishment. That even while doing those things, there are ways that the power of law can be undermined. So another thing to think about, even in a contemporary context, would be what are the implications for a state or for a legal system when it exerts its power? Am I over? You can take a minute, or you can come yeah. in. OK, so maybe we'll have time for one or two comments, and then Alex is going to start his presentation. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. There might be a temptation to people to want to do harm to the body because this person was supposed to have done something so terrible. And then it would make a regular person do something criminal. Oh, I like that. So in those times, that would not be so far-fetched. I mean, you think about it in the early uh, the witch hunts and whatever. If there's such an evil person, people might be tempted to do something to Right. What, one of the things I like about this is that there could be something compromising about displaying a body, not just for the lawmakers, but actually for everybody related in the community, either because they end up doing something nasty, but, but even the implications of what you're saying is that we shouldn't forget that this is happening in a community and that it has like a profound impact on anyone who walks by, and I really like that. Rabbi Yankowitz. If I were a capitalist, I might say something that like, the soul ascends from the body once it's buried. And so divine justice begins at burial, and human justice ends at death. The gap between death and burial, there's no justice. Right? And it says that the divine is not in control of the soul yet, and humans no longer either. So it's almost like a, a representative of there is no justice in the world. I can, I can see the argument. I don't know if they ever thought that God relinquished control on anything, these rabbis. Because they're, they're legislating it. They think that, meaning, meaning they think God has asked them to do something with that body in that time. How, what, how, do you, how, does he, how do you work that part into it? Because God asked them to put up the body and take it down. So that, to me, speaks to you know, God's dominion and their you know, acting in it. What, what do you see there? Leaving the body up. Oh, leaving it up and not it, doing it's that. It's problematic because it represents there being no uh-huh. Mm -hmm. It's that gap here where no one's in control. Mm -hmm. Well, and it would certainly be because they've been told to take it down. <laughs> so it would certainly be in disobedience and saying that you know, nobody, nobody has responsibility now. Okay, yeah. 
That's it? Okay. So I'm going to um, I'm gonna ask you to just make some notes. There will be time for, for a more general discussion at the end, but I want to give Alex a chance to, uh, to begin. Thanks. That, that conversation actually reminded me a lot. I, I was just in England visiting my family, and my sister is a, an early childhood teacher. And um, the punishment, talking of punishments, uh, they don't use capital punishment, actually, um, in uh, early childhood education. But the, the strongest punishment is, uh, is uh, sitting in time out, um, which, is occasion which is simply the kid goes and sits in a chair in the corner. And, of course, you don't ever want to be put in time out. It's, it's an awful thing to happen to you. And uh, apparently, one day my sister was at school, and one of the kids in the class said really loudly, I like being in time out. And... The teachers looked at each other, like, terrified because this kid is like, cut through the fact that actually the worst punishment is simply sitting in a chair. And um, all the other kids heard it, and it was going to sow dissent in the classroom. And actually, what are they going to do? They could, they could put the kid in time out, but then that would even undermine the law even more, wouldn't it? Yes. So, yes, it reminded me a lot of that. Okay, um, let's, let's start having a look at the uh, text that I brought here. Um, I, I'm going to begin by outlining for you a very uh, big question in contemporary American political philosophy, uh, which is a question that's been asked by many people and I don't think has yet received a satisfactory answer. Um, we are then going to take a look at these sources. I, I brought three texts. Each one of them is fairly long. It could end up being that we, we spend most of our time on the first one and the others uh, you take home and, and look at in your own time. Um, if there's time, we'll, we'll certainly get to them. Um, here's, the, here's the big question. What role should religious belief, religious uh, community convictions have in public discourse in the United States? So, for example, um, let's say there's going to be a debate in Congress, and, of course, if there's a debate in Congress, there's also debates on the op-ed pages of major newspapers, there's debates around people's kitchen tables, there's debates um, in, when you go to the barber, people talk about stuff. So let's say there's a debate about a big, urgent, important issue, uh, let's say abortion, or same-sex marriage, or gun rights, or capital punishment. And the list could go on and on. So there's a debate about these questions. What role should religious convictions have in these debates? In other words, um, uh, let's take the abortion example. Uh, should you uh, be allowed to say in a public debate, should somebody be able to say, stand up in Congress and say, I think abortion should be, you could go in either way, let's say, I think abortion should be uh, outlawed in all circumstances because my priest, whatever, says that that's the religious requirement and I'm going to do all I can to impose that on the rest of society. Is that is that seen to play by the rules of American public discourse? Now, most, most, now there are some people that would say, well, here's the question. So here's the question. Is, is that playing by the rules? Is that an acceptable move to make, an acceptable line to say in American public discourse? Now, on the one hand, you could say no. Now, why would you say no? You, might, you may say no because in America, there's lots of different people. Some people are Catholic, some people are Protestant, some people are Jewish, some people are atheists, some people are Buddhist, some people are spiritual and have no particular religion, whatever it is. All of these people have to get along 
and not just get along, but all of these people have to participate in this public discourse and in this legislative process. And if I say, listen, what I'm bringing to this public debate is that my priest, rabbi, imam, whatever, says X, there's no way that somebody from a different religious tradition or from no religious tradition can actually engage in conversation with that position. Because what can you say? Well, I don't believe what your priest believes. Then it's, then it's not that um, there's a conversation going on. There's no conversation going on. Just, just a second. It's not a, it's not a disagreement. There's no conversation. It's people talking right past each other. So for that reason, there are some political philosophers. Um, this is, this is, comes out in at least one interpretation of the early work of John Rawls. John Rawls, R-A-W-L-S, who's the most important political philosopher in the past uh, 50, 60 years, um, um, who says that when you have public discourse about questions like this, by all means have religious convictions, by all means have religious beliefs, but when you bring your own opinions into public discourse, into public debate, you have to translate whatever your religious beliefs may happen to be into a language which is the kind of neutral language that everybody can engage with. You don't say, I think X about abortion because my priest, rabbi, imam, whatever, says that, or the Bible says that, or the Quran says that. You don't say that. What you say is, I think X, Y, Z about abortion, gun rights, capital punishment, because of, uh, has such and such effect on uh, whatever, public morale, such and such an effect on deterrence of crime, such and such an effect. You use the language of, um, of uh, sociology, use the language of science, use the language of public Human reason. Human rights, exactly, that's the classic one. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so that's one position, that, that essentially religious language should not find its way into the public sphere because it means that people can't have real conversations with each other. Now, the pushback against that, and that's a very uh, well-established position, and there's a lot to be said about it, but the pushback against that position goes something like this. For people who have religious beliefs and convictions, often those religious beliefs and convictions are not just kind of incidental. They are fundamental to their identity and to what they believe and what they think should be done. These are crucial aspects of these people's identity. By saying you have to only have neutral conversations in the public sphere, what you're essentially asking is that everybody leave at home a crucial part of their identity. And what it means is that the conversations that are had in the public discourse are kind of shallow, shadow conversations because people aren't bringing their full, real, meaningful selves to those conversations. Um, apart from that, can we actually imagine American history and some of the great moments in American history can we imagine um, the March on Washington, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which was deeply religious, deeply religious speech, quoting the Bible, um, 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 resting on the, the kind of rhythms and traditions of his ministry? Could we imagine American public discourse without those kinds of speeches, those soaring moral moments? By asking everyone just to be neutral in the public sphere, we're saying Martin Luther King don't give that I have a dream speech with all of that kind of rhetoric. Just say, um, we think everybody should be free because of human rights. And that doesn't have the same kind of impact. It wouldn't have had the same kind of impact. So this is an unsolved problem in American public life. It's an unsolved problem. What, kind, what are the rules of public discourse? What is the role of religion in that public discourse? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, try and show you how a couple of Jewish thinkers um, injected their own kind of religious 
convictions into public discourse in America. And the theme is going to be, once again, the death penalty. Um, so to put it in another way is that now you heard from Lynn some of the problematics of the way that Jews have dealt with, the early rabbis dealt with questions of death penalty and the role of death penalty. And now we have that basis, so we as Jews know that to be the case. When there is a question about the death penalty in Arizona or in the United States government, do we feel that we are able to, we want to, we should, we may not bring those ideas from our own Jewish heritage to bear on public conversation? That's the question. So let's jump right in. Um, and there's going to be plenty of time for um, conversation at the end, but I want to make sure that we've seen some of these. And I know many people have, have comments, but I hope it's okay if we just hold these while we see some of the material that we have here, and then we'll have a more informed conversation. All right. And the first source, and possibly the only source that we're going to get to today, um, is a letter written by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was a 20th century Orthodox rabbi in New York. Um, and he, was, he wrote this letter. Now, we don't know exactly who he wrote it to. What we do know is that it was written to some government, a United States government official, who, and we can tell from the context of the letter, because we only have Rabbi Feinstein's <coughs> response, so we don't know what the original question was. But from the context, it seems that a, an American public official had asked the rabbi for his thoughts about the death penalty. And he is writing to this government official with his thoughts of the death penalty as a rabbi. So that's the context of, of the letter, okay? Okay, so let's, let's have a look at it. It's dated uh, 1981. He opens, first, I offer my feelings of love and respect for the government official who wanted to know the position of the Torah given by God. Um, and by the way, Rabbi Feinstein, just as a matter, as a rule, uh, as a rule, was deeply um, not just respectful of, but also had tremendous gratitude to the United States. He referred to the United States of a Medina as a Medina shal Chesed, which means a a, a a merciful state, a state of kindness. He was uh, he appreciated the fact that um, many Jews had come from Eastern Europe and found their home and their safety in the United States, and were beginning to thrive in the United States. So he he had a very positive feelings towards the United States. Okay, here he goes. Now I will answer in brief. The Torah gives the death penalty for various for very serious crimes, like murder, some kinds of kidnapping, and sexual immorality, and some kinds of idolatry. But this is not out of hatred for the people who do the evil deed, nor out of fear for social order. On this point, Point, the Talmud says, let the owner of the vineyard come and uproot the thorns. Rather, it is so that people should know the severity of these prohibitions so as not to transgress them. Now, just to pause on this paragraph, because this paragraph is very important for us. This paragraph is getting at what Rabbi Moshe Feinstein thinks is the reason for the Torah giving the death penalty to these severe crimes. So, just let's talk in the abstract, philosophically, for a second. There, if you ask uh, philosophers, what is the reason for punishment generally? Like, what might be the reason for putting someone in prison? And there's normally uh, four or five possible answers to given, given to that question. Good. So one of them is to protect society. This person 
is a thief, this person um, is violent, and we want them off the street, so we incarcerate them. And you could make the argument also for the death penalty. Somebody so violent as to be a murderer, if there's a chance that that person's going to repeat the murderous crime, it protects other people by putting, taking that person out of the equation, by putting them to death. That's one possible answer. Another possible reason for um, punishment is rehabilitation. This isn't so popular nowadays, but before, let's say, the beginning, the, really before the middle of the 20th century, this was a very popular belief that the reason for incarceration is not to keep people off the streets, but actually to help them be better people. It's a kind of uh, timeout, right? Um, this person is a criminal, and we as a society need to help this person become a better person, so we'll send them to prison. And, and earlier prisons were not just places where people were, um, were locked up, but in certain periods of time and places, there were also places where, let's say, um, clergy people would come and preach to the prisoners to try and educate them to mend their ways, so rehabilitation. Another possible answer, uh, reason for punishment is uh, what's referred to as retribution. In other words, this person had it coming. This person, this person um, was violent towards somebody. We're going to be violent towards them. We're going to pay them back. They have their just deserts. This person killed somebody. They're going to be killed. It's retribution. Okay? So these are reasons for punishment. It's not a, not a comprehensive list, but these are some of the reasons that philosophers give for punishment, protecting society, retribution, um, rehabilitation, and of course, finally, which we talked about uh, about half an hour ago, a question of deterrence. If everyone knows that if you murder somebody, then you could be put to death, then you're less likely to murder deterrent. Okay. When Rabbi Moshe Feinstein talks about the reasons for the Torah, mandating the death penalty for very serious crimes, he says as follows. The reason for the death penalty is, as he says, it's not out of hatred for the people who do the evil deed. What does he mean by that? He means it's not a question of retribution. This is not saying this person did something bad, therefore we have to do something bad to him. It's not out of hatred for that person. It's not retribution. Why is it not retribution? It's not retribution, one second. And it's also not out of fear for social order. It's not to keep the streets safe. So he says the reason for the Torah giving the death penalty is not retribution. It's not for social order. So what's the reason? Oh, and he says, why is he not those things? The Talmud says, let the owner of the vineyard come and uproot the thorns. What does that mean? Who's the owner of the vineyard? God. God. Good. So God has a vineyard, which is society. And what grows in a vineyard? What grows in a vineyard? Grapes. Great. And most of us are just lovely, juicy grapes on a vine. However, in society, there can be some thorns. So what are you meant to do with the thorns? Says the Talmud, the owner of the vineyard should come and uproot the thorns. In other words, if God's so upset about thorns being there, God should get rid of the, the thorns. In other words, the ultimate question of retribution, of social order, whatever it is, rests with God. So why then does the Torah say that there's a death penalty for these crimes? And this is the end of that paragraph. So that people should know the severity of those prohibitions so as not to transgress them. So, and this gets, connects very well, I think, with what Lynn said about the rabbis um, talking about the death penalty as ways of um, understanding themselves and forming um, a perception of their own identity. 
The reason the Torah, Moshe Feinstein says, the reason that the Torah mandates the death penalty for certain crimes is an educational tool. The law, the punishment is there as an educational tool. If there is a death penalty for such and such a crime, this teaches us that the crime is a very, very severe crime. The death penalty is not there as deterrence. It's not there to keep social order. It's there as education. It's there to teach us that the crime is a, diff is a bad, bad crime. This is actually quite an interesting and radical reason for a punishment. The role of God here is, if you're interested in retribution, people getting their just desserts, that is not the role of human beings to do. It's so God's role to do. God will deal with it. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Did you have a quick comment? Mm -hmm. um, well, in a sense, yes. The difference would be as follows. Deterrence is, um, I want to murder somebody, but I see that if somebody, um, that the, other, the previous person that murdered somebody got put to death, and therefore I am afraid for myself, for my own safety, because I may be put to death, therefore I'm not going to do it. In other words, it's, I'm not necessarily um, internalizing a... a um, internalizing a lesson, internalizing a deep understanding of the severity of the crime, and acting out of self-preservation. In, in other words, there's a guy there with a big stick who's going to hit me if I do this, so I better not do it. Rather than the educational model is, gosh, I see God's Torah says that the death penalty is attached to this crime. That must be a really serious crime. I must train myself to understand that, and therefore, of my own free will, not engage in the crime. Thanks for the question. That was an important clarification. As education as opposed to threats? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's continue. On the other hand, so, so this is the reason for the death penalty attached to certain crimes. He continues. On the other hand, there is an emphasis on the importance of every life and other calculations. Therefore, we were commanded that only a properly ordained Sanhedrin is authorized to judge capital cases... That means to say um, that not any old schmo can judge a capital crime in Jewish law. It has to be a Sanhedrin, which is a formally ordained Jewish court. That is to say it's a court which is, um, and the people sitting on the court are ordained. Um, ordination, um, I mean, nowadays we use the term ordination to mean essentially the certification that a, um, a teacher or a rabbinical school gives to somebody to be a rabbi. Um, historically, the rabbis understood ordination as being an unbroken line of authority from Moses that was passed down from teacher to pupil, teacher to pupil, all through the generations, which died out at some point. So we don't actually have this proper official ordination anymore. So this already is a moot point. Like, there is no Jewish court that can, according to the um, traditional halakha, there is no Jewish court that's able to give a death penalty. Okay, he continues... And we may only ordain for this purpose sages who have a great knowledge of the Torah and other areas of knowledge, who are very humble and fear God and hate money and love the truth and the creations, in that they are, the judges have to be good and lowly people who give good company and speak and do business gently with others and that have no arrogance or bad reputation and that are extremely merciful. 
For this reason, we do not appoint a very old judge who has already forgotten a little of the difficulty of raising children, nor someone who does not have children who perhaps is lacking a little in mercy and might be too angry towards transgressors. In other words, the judges on this court have to be properly ordained, and they have to be people who are, who are basically like perfectly moral individuals with a particular emphasis on which quality, which moral quality? The quality of mercy. And this in itself is interesting. Uh, do we say normally that we want judges to be merciful? Well, we might, but we, there's often a tension in the philosophy of law between mercy and truth. Meaning, if you're merciful, you're going to really try hard to let the person live. But if you're interested in truth, you're going to really try hard to find the truth. And if that means putting the person to death and put the person to death, there's sometimes a tension between mercy and truth in legal philosophy. And that tension is, by the way, addressed in other areas of Jewish law. But here, the emphasis is, in capital cases, the emphasis is explicitly on mercy. We want, if at all possible, to acquit somebody who's um, convicted of a capital crime and not to give them the death penalty. So the death penalty does exist, but everything in the legal system is geared to, if at all possible, acquitting the person so that the court does not have to put them to death, and not only through the mercy of the judges, but let's continue. These great and good men, the judges on the court, may only judge on a court of 23. That means you know, the Supreme Court of the United States of America has nine justices. There's, a max, there's nine justices. The court that puts a, a person to death, according to Jewish law, has to have 23 people on it, and should also have three rows of very great Torah sages before them in case they make a mistake in the law. There's a deep fear here of what? A deep fear of a mistake in the law, which means a deep fear of wrongful conviction. There is a deep, deep fear of the possibility of a court putting somebody to death wrongly. And that fear is so deep that they far prefer acquitting a person than convicting somebody wrong. If there's a chance of convicting, convicting an innocent person, then the whole thing is, 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 is weighed in the other direction to better, to better to acquit the guilty than to convict the innocent by far. To continue. Also, it's not appropriate to convict in a capital case, even on the greatest evidence in the world, unless there are two qualified witnesses who are not connected to the case at all. We know in Jewish law that um, witnesses must come at least in groups of two, that means, to see, that means to say, if I witness somebody committing murder, and I'm, and I'm there, and I see personally the guy take a knife and do well, I'm not going to describe it. <laughs> That's not necessary. To see the witness the murder with my own two eyes, and I remember everything about it, and I'm an honest person who the court recognizes as honest. My testimony is worth nothing, nothing according to halakha because I'm only one witness. There needs to be two witnesses. And watch this. This is, I think, a very interesting kind of um, reference now that Rabbi Feinstein is going to make to the American legal system. There have to be two witnesses who are not connected to the case at all. That means they can't be related to anybody in the case. And he goes on to say, and certainly not witnesses who, are, who have been promised to be freed from punishment if they testify against somebody else. What's that? That's plea bargaining, right? That's plea bargaining. Somebody gets collared for, um, I don't know, drug running, and they say, listen, uh, we'll let you off if you um, testify against this big crime boss, and he may get the electric chair. 
So, so Rabbi Moshe finally says, certainly in that case, the witness has got too much to gain from this situation, and certainly that witness would be disqualified. To continue, here are yet more, um, um, yet more attempts to avoid, to weigh the system, to avoid at all costs wrongful conviction. There must also be a warning and the acceptance of the warning. And the accused must say explicitly that he knows all of it and he will nevertheless transgress. What that means is, according to Jewish law, to convict a murderer, and there needs to be two witnesses who witness the murder, who, by the way, are very, very closely cross-examined. And if there's any discrepancy, even about something completely marginal and irrelevant to the details of the case, if there's any possibility that there's any forgetfulness or mistake on either part of the witnesses, the whole thing's thrown out. So there has to be these two witnesses who undergo very careful cross-examination, and there's also a warning that has to be given. What does that mean? That means, um, that, that means to convict a murderer, the following thing has to happen. Somebody's about to murder somebody else. Two people witness the murderer, and those two people, or another two people, say, excuse me, uh, excuse me, sir, I can see you're about to murder this person. First of all, we're watching, just so you know, there's two qualified witnesses here who are watching you do that. And according to many, uh, ru- uh, according to many rulings, they also need to say, um, you know that what you're about to do, you could get brought to court and you could be killed yourself if you go through with this crime. And then the person has to say, oh, yes, I, I see that. I understand all that completely, but I'm going to do it anyway with you watching and having understood the punishment of the crime then the murderer goes to do it. And, okay, so there has to be two witnesses, unimpeachable witnesses, and a warning and an acceptance of the warning. So we see that there is, in principle, a death penalty in halacha, but in practice, to convict a murderer is close to impossible. And that's why he says, Rabbi Feinstein, this is why there was a conviction in a capital case only once in many years. And he continues, it is also not possible to judge a capital case unless the temple is standing, which in 1981 when this letter was written, it wasn't. It's still not standing now. It's not been standing for a long time. Um, and the great Sanhedrin of 71, who are even greater, is in the Hall of Hewn Stone in the Temple. Therefore, he says, Jews did not judge capital crimes, even in countries where the government gave the Jews permission to judge, according to the Torah. So basically, um, there's not been a Jewish society ever that has judged capital crimes according to halacha. Now he says... Um, what about murderers? <laughs> so you have loads of murderers in Jewish communities who know that they can basically get away with it because they'll never be convicted according to um, halachic law. Here is what he says. Nevertheless, there was almost never in all the generations murderers among Jews because of the severity of the prohibition and because of what was taught by the Torah and by the punishments of the Torah, which gave an understanding of the severity of the prohibition. They were not just afraid of punishment in the sense of the strongest rules, the strongest person rules. This is the distinction that, that we made before. Okay. Why were there no murderers among Jewish societies throughout the ages? Not because they were afraid of capital punishment, but because they knew the Torah. The Torah says that murder and these other very severe crimes have a punishment of the capital punishment attached to them. Therefore, this taught people that these crimes are extremely severe and people therefore didn't do them. Now, is this true or not historically? 
it doesn't actually matter for our purposes. Of course, Jews have murdered people in history. Um, but the point that he's trying to make here is, if you want to try and stop murders in a society, don't do it by killing people. Do it by using law and other educational <laughs> tools at your disposal to somehow instill in people the understanding of the severity of the crime. In other words, education is better than deterrence. Now, he doesn't say this, what I'm about to say, but you could make not too, diff not too difficult a jump from there to say something like this. If what you want is a death penalty because you're afraid that people will be murderers, try taking the money and the time that goes into putting people on trial for murder and then giving them the electric chair or lethal injection. Put all of that money into early childhood education. Put all of that money into institutions that can train people for jobs. Put all of that money into helping people be good parents to their children. And hopefully, it's the education, the social education, that will prevent crime rather than some fear for self-preservation of potential criminals. He doesn't say that. I'm extrapolating in a certain direction, which I, he may or may not agree with. Okay. Now, here's an interesting paragraph, and I think this gets at a question that Maya asked uh, a little while ago. All this is when the murder was committed because of some great passion or a dispute or a disagreement over money or honor. But if someone kills because they do not recognize the prohibition of murder, who is very cruel, in other words, if a very cruel person kills just because they don't care about killing people, or if murderers and evildoers have become numerous, they would judge them according to emergency law to prevent murder and to save the state. What Moshe Feinstein is saying here is, according to Halakha, as we've seen, there is a death penalty, but the death penalty is there for didactic, for educational purposes only, um, and it's therefore almost impossible to convict a murderer. However, that if it, a situation comes about that there is widespread lawlessness in a society, that there's a real fear that we need to really do something about this, then there are extra legal mechanisms to convict people of murder or of other kinds of crimes. In other words, the halakha makes it very, very difficult, very difficult to convict people according to a capital crime. But, and that's normally fine. But if we get to a situation where it's really crucially impossible to be able to convict people of these kinds of crimes, then leave the halakha to one side, and let's use other kinds of political mechanisms, other kinds of courts, other kinds of institutions to try and convict people. What he's saying here is that he acknowledges that the role of halakha does not seem to be to actually govern a society in practice. All of those rules, just like we, we heard with the texts in the Mishnah and the Talmud, um, that the, the, the laws there are not primarily to, um, to actually govern a society in practice on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis. They're educational tools. They're identity-exploring tools. So here, all of this discussion about uh, how difficult it is to convict a murderer, that makes these laws kind of impractical when it comes to dealing with a society, especially one as complex as the, as the United States. And given that, there certainly can be other legal mechanisms, courts, institutions, Congress, whatever else, that 
Jews, observant Jews who care about the Torah, would still recognize their authority if they say, listen, we need to do X, Y, Z. Okay. Now, I want to um, just say, I'm going to speak for two more minutes, um, coming back to the question I asked at the beginning, and then we're going to pause and we're going to talk about this for the, the rest of the time um, that we have. I open with the question of um, this unsolved question in contemporary political philosophy of what is the role that religious conviction should have in the public sphere and public discourse, questions of legislation in Congress, newspapers, and so on. And I said it's a kind of difficult question. It's an unsolved question. On the one hand, you want public conversations to be um, neutral so that people can have actual in, in, actually engage with each other in conversation. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem right to ask people to just leave a crucial, central part of their identity at home when they come and talk about these important, urgent, moral questions of our day with other people. And what I want to suggest is that this um, letter by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein actually helps us get at this question in a new way. Because what Rabbi Moshe Feinstein does is he makes two moves. He makes two moves which I think are helpful. First move is when he talks about Jewish law, he doesn't talk about it as um, norms that had to be imposed upon other people. According to Jewish law, um, we say such and such a thing about uh, abortion, gay marriage, gun rights, death penalty, blah, 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 whatever it may be. And therefore, because I'm Jewish and I care about that law, I want that law to be imposed, to be um, enacted in Congress. He doesn't talk about Jewish law as a X, Y, or Z should be done. He talks about Jewish law as an educational tool to convey values to people. It's an educational tool to show that such and such a crime is very, very severe. So in other words, he takes his own legal tradition, but he talks about it in such a way that he's not suggesting that the Jewish law should be imposed even in part, on anyone else. He's bringing the Jewish law and he's extracting from that the abstract values which he hope will, hopes will inform the conversation. So what are the abstract values that he's hoping will inform the conversation? The severity of certain crimes, the sanctity of human life, such that the possibility of a wrongful conviction in a, in a, in a capital case is so terrifying to consider that better to free the guilty than to put an innocent man or woman to death. Um, and also this value that, um, that cultures and, and law can have a, um, a, can have a didactic, um, um, can have a didactic force and that we don't necessarily always need to look to deterrence. We can also look to education, to instilling values in people as a way of solving problems. It's not necessarily for human beings to decide who deserves what. That's to be left to God. But it is left to human beings to translate these values into education. So that's the first move he makes. The first move he makes is that he translates, the val that he translates norms into values. And those values, I think, can be brought into public conversation quite happily with people who are not Jewish and don't know anything about Jewish law. The second move that he makes is that he acknowledges with humility the um, inefficacy of halakha as a practical tool of governance. 
Now, bear in mind, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, he was an Orthodox rabbi. He believed that halakha was binding, that Jewish law was absolutely binding. It was God-given and binding. And if you asked him a question about uh, keeping kosher or Shabbat or anything like that, he would say, this is the law, and you absolutely have to give it, have to do it in this way. But when it comes to questions of criminal law, which is what we're talking about here, he acknowledged that the role of halakha is more educational than practical. So in other words, it's a quite an interesting thing. He's bringing his own religious um, beliefs and his own religious teachings to a public conversation. But even as he's doing it, he's acknowledging with humility that those, that those religious teachings are not necessarily meant to govern a whole society. He's not saying that these need to be imposed on other people. Rather, they are there as ways of conveying values and meaning which can perhaps inform a public conversation. And he concludes with saying to this government official, I sign with blessings to the government official to govern the state with righteousness and honesty and with proper law for all his days and may God's name be made great in all the United States with blessings and Feinstein. So I'm going to leave it there just to reiterate briefly um, the contribution I think that Jewish law is making in here and I'm just going to draw on one of the things that Lynn said um, at the beginning of her presentation is that when we're thinking of how to bring um, the teachings of the Jewish tradition to bear in public conversations first of all to remember always that um, Jewish law is multifaceted and multivocal there's very rarely any one specific thing that's, um, that's the conclusion of a particular issue in, in Jewish law. Um, but, but secondly, that um, I think it is possible to use Rabbi Feinstein's example as a way of bringing um, a kind of religious teachings and using them in the public sphere as long as they are, come with humility as to their applicability to others in a practical way and to perhaps translate them away from normative um, questions, normative um, um, requirements into values, which in this case, regarding the death penalty, is to reiterate all the supreme value, the sanctity of human life, um, the feeling that when it comes to questions of making sure that people get what they deserve, that's not really our job, that's God's job, um, and, um, and the, the, the overwhelming fear of wrongful conviction, especially in, in questions of, of capital law. Okay, we'll leave it there, and, and um, Let's have a conversation for, for both of us. So if anyone has any questions or discussion about anything that either of us said, now is, now is your chance. Um, yes, please. I want to go back to the, the body being removed. Sure. In the lawmakers of old times, in their wisdom, there were several times when they made laws that appeared to be religious, but turned out to be very practical, such as, Cleaning everything out for Pesach, that meant that the house was completely cleaned and there were no vermin and there were no rodents and there, and there was no disease. That was one. The second one is not eating pork because you can get trichinosis. They didn't know that, but that turned out to be a very wise decision. And leaving a body in the street or hanging will create disease, and the people that live in the area will, will get cholera and die. And so even that, without knowing it, 
became a very practical reason for making that law. I can see it as a good benefit. The, the one thing that's in the back of my mind is that there was a lot more death, vi visible death and extreme poverty that they encountered than what I, for example, live with in, in Columbus, Ohio. And so I like the idea of you know, also kind of keeping, keeping dead bodies out of the public sphere, but I, I think historically, even if this were done, we, we know execution didn't happen, we know they didn't have to do it, but even if it were done, it wouldn't have made um, enough of a, a dent in the other kinds of animal and even you know, human um, death and disease that would have been around. That's sort of an, an issue. That's certainly true. And so um, I don't know that we could talk about intentions, as you say, but there could be certainly um, very good practical outcomes for that. On the execution front, it would have been, I have to see it more like what Alex talks about, which is an expression of values. On the one hand, it was part of the Bible, so they're reiterating it. And I think they're giving it their own stamp of what it means to them. Um, but I do agree that especially the norm of burying early or burying quickly um, would have this great public health aspect as well, which they couldn't have known. But I think you're right. It turned out to be the outcomes were beneficial. The intention was not that, probably, but it turned out to be very wise. I have one other comment, if I may. Um, the, the idea of, of referring to the priest or the rabbi or whatever in making comments or, or expressing views to, to Congress, for example, we learn from our our leaders and our and our religious um, studies, and so the comments we make without referring to them become the values and the beliefs that we have that, that are our own. So it's it's perfectly logical that we can we can state those beliefs very vehemently without ever referring to the people that taught us because. Through the teachings, it becomes ours. I think that's right, and I think John Rawls will probably agree with you. Yeah, uh, please. We'll go around like this. I think, I, I think you're entirely correct, and if I could just add one other um, difference between what Martin Luther King did and what we're talking about here, um, I, I, 
uh, you could argue against me on this, but but I think it's fair to say that the that he was talking in a language of um, abstract values, um, equality in particular, human dignity. Um, it, it would be different, I think, if, let's say, for example, I mean, uh, a recent... In specific uh, laws uh, down south. Specific laws. Before, you know, before it was... Before it was illegal, yeah. and there were just all the social barriers to African Americans. There were specific discriminatory yeah. laws that the movement yeah. was trying to overturn. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yeah, you're right. I still think. That, okay, let me give you an example. So let's take gay marriage for for an example. I think there's a difference between saying my Bible teaches me that all people are treated uh, um, are equal and all people, God creates all people equally and therefore everyone has to be treated equally according to the law, whether, whatever the color of their skin. Um, I think there's a difference between saying that and saying, for example, um, my Bible teaches me that um, uh, gay marriage is wrong and therefore same-sex couples can't, can't be married. I think there's a difference there. Um, I think there's a difference there and I think the difference might be that, once again, the, the Martin Luther King example can be boiled down to abstract values, human dignity, human equality, and so on, that he brings from his religious tradition, uses the strong religious language, but can ultimately be translated into other kinds of language. And it's not just saying, um, my Bible tells me X about this very particular law. I, I think that's abstract. He was talking about the yeah. particular rules, but there I want to... There were also people who used yeah. the Bible to defend status. Absolutely, 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 you're right. But yeah, I, I want to build I, on something yeah, that you said, I, which I, I thought was I kind of interesting. Yeah, so I, I think we're to leave the king thing, because I think that that is sort of... It's a very I think you're point. right. I think you're right, too. But I think you're picking... I think you're saying something which I want to highlight, which is, is it different to articulate values that are learned from biblical stories, or even values that are learned from biblical laws, versus... Um, trying to legislate by taking a biblical rule yeah. and inserting it into a canon of non-sectarian laws. Yeah. That, for me, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. You felt uncomfortable with trying to look for legal precedent yeah. in a rule Good. in a, in a non-American canon. Yeah. You didn't want a legal precedent. You were okay with it being informing of values. Yeah. And I thought that was like an interesting point. I don't know if other people That's sort of, well what they feel about it. That, for me, was interesting. That's well put. I wonder to what extent you see the rabbinic tradition interested in empiricism as opposed to ideology, which is to say in a case like this, rather than saying we're pro or against the death penalty in America for these reasons, um, we think saving innocent life is important, and so the only approach we can take to public policy is an empirical one of assessing which policies actually work to reduce the number of innocent people being killed. Again, it's a question for both of you. A Talmudic and a modern question of the role of the empirical within public policy and Jewish thought. Huh. I sometimes think that the empirical in, um, in Talmudic thought is something, at least in, in the way the Babylonian Talmud, I think sometimes gets very far from the empirical. I was just having this conversation with a, a social psychologist, and he was telling me about how when people judge, when they see someone else doing something, Apparently, people tend to think the worst of whatever they're doing. So, for example, if someone eats a lot of shared communal food at a table, then the, the thought that a lot of people have is, 
oh, they're so greedy, they're so inconsiderate, and they don't think that person's been fasting all day or that person doesn't have a lot of resources at home, right? So we think that. So apparently that's like, I don't know, studies show that. I'm not a social psychologist. What I was interested in this, why? Because there's this, this halachic principle in classical Jewish law about not only should one do what is according to the law, but also be seen to be doing what's according to the law. And the value is called mari ayin. But, so you might think that that would go according to an empirical idea of when would a person think that you are actually misbehaving. So if there's any possible, so for politicians, for example, they need to avoid any possibility that there could be a thought that they're misbehaving. But Jewish law doesn't see it that way. Jewish law, or at least you know, classical halakha, conceives this as it has to be that there could be no other possible explanation or interpretation except that you are misbehaving for this to be prohibited from a marit ayin perspective. Meaning, let's say you're doing something fine, but it looks really, really terrible. You're only forbidden to do it if there is no other possible explanation a person could think of. Why am I bringing it? Right, but otherwise you can do it, even if it looks kind of bad, because someone could think of some reason why it's okay. This for me, so then, so then I was talking to the social scientist and he said, well, what would, if, if I put these studies in front of a traditional Jewish jurist, would they change their mind about the norms that are expected for a person to be looking to be adherent and not just being adherent? And I said, no. I think that a, that a traditional Jewish jurist would say, don't tell me about those studies because it would put too many burdens on people to be absolutely, have, you know, you would be using empirical information to change law in a way that might potentially limit people's ability to go out in the world, do what they need to do, and it would be, it would be more strict. So I can give this, an, I feel that this is an example that... What if it was the other way? What if it made life easier for people? Ah. Well, first of all, it depends. I think another thing is, like, I'm thinking about what kind of like, legal decider I would be and what kind of legal decider other people might be. They might be looking for ways of keeping people more hemmed in. So maybe if it would help, they might be interested in it, but maybe if it wouldn't help... They wouldn't be, but I, I think I think it's like a very open question about how legal decision makers would use, like for example, those studies. And so, I, from a Talmudic perspective, I think it's very open. I don't know what Alex has to say about modern. Um, I I need to think more about it. I, I mean, there's there's there's. Well, we're short on time. <laughs> so, so maybe we'll hear from some other people. Obviously, I could give you a full and detailed answer to that question, but I just want to give other people. Actually, we're, <laughs> we're more than short. Oh, time. actually, we're done. Do, yeah. What? what? Eight thirty-three. There's one more burning question I think we can take that. Okay. Yes. Um, so, what would be the? I want to hear from you. What's your name again? Brady. Do you have any thoughts on anything that came up tonight? I'm so curious because you're obviously going to have a different perspective. I assume you're still in school. I don't know. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just going to share part of why uh, we both did come today is uh, Brianna's father is not Jewish. And so she has heard, as we have all heard, that the Jews killed Christ. Yeah. And so we actually sat with Rabbi Capel to talk about this. And Rabbi Capel did point out that Jewish law does not involve that kind of question at all. So we wanted to yeah. kind of expand more on that and yeah, bring more. It was. It was, it was a long, long time ago. ago. Yeah. Well, in Mark, I mean, there, there, there are New Testament sources. And in fact, when we're talking about whether rabbis had and Jews had the authority to put anyone to death in the time of Jesus, 
the New Testament is one of the sources that people look at, but they also look at some um, church father sources and some other things. And the evidence is pretty scattered, but the scholarly consensus would be that Jews did not have the authority and from a legal perspective would not be kind of able to put Jesus to death. So there are sources that make it kind of look like that, but that people who are historians of the first century, which is when obviously Jesus lived and died, assuming he was you know, a historical character, um, that this is the, the reason why that becomes an important story is because as Christianity and Judaism grew apart from one another, there was a lot of intergroup polemics, which got worse and worse and worse. Um, and that this is an unfortunate thing that has really come up between the two groups since then. Somebody brought up Monty Python, and you, but you brought up the fact that the, the girl said she likes being put in the corner. And the first thing I thought of was in one of Monty Python's, it's a comfy chair punishment. <laughs> That's the a Spanish Inquisition skit. Yeah. Was a comfy chair. <laughs> right. Ooh, I like this. <laughs> That's, That's, good. Uh, That's good. And That's what it sounded like. But also, <laughs> like, the question that I had is you use the word truth when I was thinking that the word should have been justice, and are they equivalent? Ah, uh, yes, mercy and justice is, is actually gets better at what I was, you mean, when I was talking about mercy versus truth, right. mercy versus justice actually gets better at what I was trying to, trying to say. So, yeah, that's, that's good. Thank you, Professor K. Thank you, Professor K. Thank you so much.